Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we dig into the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2022, Goblin Mode. An ode to self-indulgence and not caring about putting your best foot forward. It was voted the winner amongst three finalists in a landslide. We find out why the accelerated digital world we found ourselves in during the period of COVID lockdowns may have shown us all the limitations of our digital future. The author of The Future is Analog. David Sachs has some theories about why that is and what the solutions could be. We speak to an Edmonton Children's Hospital emergency room doctor about the crisis she is watching unfold in front of her every single day, calling it a game of chicken in terms of whether the numbers are going to go down or whether the system is going to collapse. What could solutions look like? But first, the Federal Auditor General has taken a close look at the $210 billion paid out to individuals and companies between early 2020 and mid-2022 to protect workers and businesses hit by the pandemic. It did do a lot of good, but it wasn't well accounted for. We look into just how much money may be lost. Well, you know, waste not, want not, haste makes waste. Those are all, those predate uh, the 21st century. Um, Canada's Auditor General has taken a really good look at all that money, $210 billion that Ottawa sent out at the height of the pandemic and made some pretty incredible, if unsurprising, findings if you've been following along. $210 billion in payments were distributed to individuals and businesses between early 2020 and mid-2022, all in an effort to try to avoid what was really the worst of the economic impacts of the pandemic. Uh, lots of people, you know, right across the country, people took advantage of I think CERB, actually, the most CERB payments went to Alberta, believe it or not. Um, so lots of people out there benefited from this. It was important that people be kept solvent, that businesses be kept solvent during the height of this. At the same time, though, how you pour money out the door matters when it comes to trying to figure out, A, where it all went, and B, how much of it do you actually need to take back or get back? So Karen Hogan, who is our Auditor General, says COVID-19 benefits were delivered quickly and helped mitigate economic suffering. However, the federal government hasn't done enough to recover overpayment. She says the programs delivered relief to workers and employers uh, and helped the economy rebound. At the same time, the report says that the Canada Revenue Agency and Employment and Social Development Canada, the two agencies responsible for this, have not followed up by verifying payments. She estimates $4.6 billion was paid to people who were not eligible. $4.6 billion. Another $27.4 billion. That's the minimum, by the way. $27.4 billion in payments to people and businesses should be, she said, further investigated. And it is all at risk of going uncollected again because those federal government agencies are doing a pretty poor job of identifying individuals and businesses that should be forced to pay back those funds. So what is the end result? of all of this. Joining me now with more on that is Ian Lee. He's an associate professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. So uh, not entirely unexpected here. I guess what we did find out is that uh, for all intents and purposes, a lot of these uh, emergency income uh, relief was welcome, did what it was supposed to do, but an awful lot of money went out the door. It did. And, you know, I was very critical of it at the time. Not not the idea of helping people that needed help. I mean, I don't think that there was any decent human being that was opposed to helping those who needed help. But the, from the moment they announced it, and I remember in, in, it was early, late spring, early summer 2020, and I thought, you know, there's no checks and balances. When you say, you know, we'll worry about the checks and balances after we've given away the money, that's just a an open-ended uh, advertisement to some people to to come and scam the system. I'm not suggesting that everybody's a, a scammer or a scam artist, but, you know, Abraham Lincoln taught many, many people. He said, we are not all angels. And that's why we have checks and balances. And that's why we have due diligence. And that's why we have rules and so forth. And at the time, they said, well, we'll worry about that after the fact. We've got to get the money out the door. Uh, very quickly, why I disagreed with it at the time, and it's because I've been in Ottawa all my life, and I have friends in the government who worked many, many years in the government, including my late father, and I did my PhD in federal budgeting and public policy in the government. Right. I knew that, the, the, that we already have a system. 
in Canada. It's called the Canada Revenue Agency. And because uh, uh, a long time ago, a third of a century ago, some guy by the name of Mulroney <laughs> passed the GST. And to make it more palatable to critics, he said, look, don't worry, everybody. We're going to rebate uh, the GST to low income Canadians through the tax system. And that became the infrastructure later in the early part of this new century. Uh, Governor Canada, including revenue, uh, CRA, completely digitized everything. And where I'm going with this, last year, 30 and, a one, 30 and a half million, 31 million Canadians filed tax returns. And of course, in that tax return, you have to disclose your bank account, date of birth, address, homeowner, renter, the whole nine yards. And so the, the CRA has impeccable information on exactly how much we make where we live and and since the uh, the rebate system was established then the current government established rebates for carbon taxes it works extremely well it's very efficient it's essentially reversing the pipeline flow of funds normally the funds flow in to cra from 31 million taxpayers and all the corporations that owe taxes <laughs> what they do with the rebate system is they just simply reverse the pipeline so now the money is flowing from the cra on behalf of the government to the the gst recipient or the carbon tax refund recipient so <clears throat> the infrastructure is there and it's been there for for as long as we've had a tax system and and so what they did at the time is they had to go and set up this temporary covid benefits infrastructure system it took them three or four months they didn't have checks and balances and so they inevitably ended up overpaying billions and billions of dollars and and Ben, the reason why that's problematic, I'm not suggesting that this is going to bankrupt or the government of Canada. Absolutely not. What it does is it undermines the integrity of the tax system. And because what it's saying to Canadians and where Canadians are going to see this as is saying, look, there were people out there scamming the system and they got away with it. And I'm supposed to pay taxes and be honest and, you know, and all that good stuff. And yet there's other people scamming the system. Why should I pay my taxes if, yeah. if, you know, other people can get away with it? That's the problem with what the Auditor General discovered in this report, in this laxity of overpayment in the first place. And la even worse, laxity of collection of the overpayment. I was surprised we talked so much about CERB, right? I was surprised that it was actually the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy program where the most sort of problems were found. I agree with you. I was even more critical of that program because I said, I argued then and now, if you are going to subsidize somebody because you're, you know, because of a, a crisis, the pandemic, pay the money directly to the individual, not to the corporation. Don't use the corporation or the employer as the intermediary, because then you have even more muddied accountability. You're giving the money to the corporation to then have them keep people on the payroll. There was no way for CRA or the government to determine if, in fact, companies did what they were supposed to do in keeping people on the payroll. And and so and there was a lot of money there because there's over a million and a half corporations in Canada, most of them small, of course. And and so, again, was it was rife uh, the way it was established almost encouraged, you know, that famous phrase, fraud and abuse. And and it could have been, as I said, set up much more efficiently and quickly, I paradoxically, using the existing CRA tax infrastructure system. Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business. We're talking about the Auditor General's report today on uh, all the money that went out the door, the $210 billion in payments that were distributed to individuals and businesses between early 2020 and mid-2022 to try to cushion the impact of the pandemic and lockdowns and so forth. Um, she found that about $27.4 is the minimum amount that should be investigated further and $4.6 billion in overpayments to ineligible recipients. Um, so what now, Ian? Do, do we try to chase all this money down? I gather that's really not feasible. Uh, we're just going to have to write off some of it, I imagine. I, I think that the uh, people may not realize this, but uh, the government does have wide, uh, any federal government has wide discretion over fiscal policy. And that includes the right, the, the authority, the legal authority to write off monies owed to the government. And uh, in fact, the Auditor General um, noted that today, saying, look, yes, the government does have the legal authority to waive and adopt a compassionate approach. But her point was, and I agree completely with the Auditor General, she said then they should be clear 
and transparent with Canadians and not use, you know, she didn't say weasel words, but she said they should come out and say, we have announced a policy. We're not going to go after this. And she said it would even be better if they introduced a bill in Parliament to to uh, normalize or legitimize that decision. I think that the government's trying to have it both ways, actually. They want to, in fact, the minister was quoted this afternoon, the minister responsible for the CRA said, well, we want to take a, a compassionate approach but uh, an efficient approach. Well, <laughs> they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. A compassionate approach is code for we're not going to go after the money. An efficient approach is, yeah, we're going to go after you for the money. And you can't do both. So I think that they're trying to have it both ways, you know, in the sense they don't want to anger people who think that they're being uh, excessively harsh, uh, you know, as we approach Christmas. And then there's other taxpayers who are going to say, well, why aren't they paying their taxes or, or money's owed to the government when I have to pay mine? And I, I think ultimately their government is not is going to announce that they're not going to collect this money i don't think they're going to uh, at least they not, could. not not chase it too hard right that that's right i mean they may go after a few sort of high profile people to create you know the symbolic uh, new the announcement that they are but i i don't think that that they're going to go after most of the the overpayments you know there's lessons for the for the future and uh, you know if we do this again i mean in another crisis mm-hmm. that a targeted approach using CRA, I think, is is much superior uh, to the approach they adopted. And so my point is, we already had very generous and proper, responsible social safety net in effect. And so this argument that they had to pump out another two-thirds of a trillion dollars in total spending, according to the PBO, because of this apocalypse, I thought was a an overshoot an overreaction by the decision makers who panicked at the time at the, of the pandemic in that in uh, spring, uh, summer, fall of 2020. There was some Scotiabank research out this week as well that looked into the impact of that money sloshing around in our system. I know the opposition likes to make a lot of it in terms of its impact on inflation on inflation so far, uh, but it did find there was there was, it did have an impact. Not not it's not the predominant impact on why we're seeing such high inflation, but it did play a role. I completely agree. I strongly believe that. And of course, we didn't cause this didn't cause inflation. I, I, You know, it's not fair to say that this caused inflation. Inflation did come in from outside war in Ukraine, escalating energy prices and so forth. But it is equally uh, wrong to deny that it, all this money being injected in the system had no impact whatsoever. It did. In fact, the way I like to put it, we they put so much money into the system, both federal and provincial, but primarily federal. We couldn't spend all of it. In fact, we ended up, and this has been documented by the Bank of Canada, we ended up banking $300 billion. They gave us so much money, we couldn't even spend all of that money. There wasn't enough stuff to buy. And and that exacerbated the inflation uh, forces in our economy by pumping all that huge amount of fiscal money into the system, as well as the ultra low interest rates of the Central Bank of Canada, lower at one quarter of 1% than the lowest interest rate during the Great Depression of Canada that lasted 10 years. They never went so low as we did during the pandemic. Well, the chickens have come home to roost, have they not, have they not they, in the last yes. six months? Yeah, oh, the they, they, yes, absolutely so. I think we will learn from this for future in future times. You know, I'm talking future decision makers will uh, make sure that they, you know, cool their jets a little bit. And I mean by that, it's not that we shouldn't be compassionate. Of course not. But we already have developed over 70, 80 years in this country, uh, just a plethora of of a, a social safety net programs, everything from EI to regional economic development to public health care, you know, to subsidize massively subsidized university and college education to social assistance to GST rebates to HST carbon tax rebates. I mean, p- people don't realize because the programs are disaggregated. But when you add them up, and StatsCan has done so, we are spending, and I'm not talking pandemic, I'm talking pre-pandemic. We're spending five hundred billion dollars a year on the the aggregate uh, safety nets uh, in Canada. So we already have a very good system in effect, and it didn't vanish when the pandemic arrived. So what we needed to do is be much more strategic and targeted during that time, instead of just saying, look, we're going to throw gazillions of dollars at the wall and hope some of it sticks. And that some of it comes back. Ian Lee, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks. (laughs) 
I like my words, right? I play Wordle. I still play Wordle. I don't know if anyone else still does. I still do. It's like a daily thing I do. Uh, I do crosswords sometimes, not as many as I used to, because I can't get them in the paper anymore. Speaking of analog, I really dislike doing crosswords digitally. I, f- I just don't find it to be the same experience at all. So now that I can't really get them in the paper, not the New York Times ones, I, I, I kind of stop. But I do like them. But I have to confess, as much as I pay attention to words, I was scratching my head a bit yesterday when I saw the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2022. Um, A few changes this time around. In the past, when they chose words such as selfie or vape or post-truth, they were chosen by a panel of experts. This time around, they chose three finalists, those same experts, quote-unquote, room of experts, and they put those to a vote online. The contestants were Metaverse, hashtag I stand with, and Goblin Mode. And it was the latter that won by a landslide. I mean, a landslide, 90%, more than 90%. And I don't, didn't, wasn't really that familiar with, I mean, I'd heard the term, but I wasn't that familiar with it. Like, oh, it wasn't like, oh yeah, goblin mode, of course, 90%. Which is ironic that, that 90% of people got up to vote for that word, considering the whole notion of the word is to be self-indulgent and not do something like bother to vote for a word in a contest like this one. So what is it? Well, someone will explain that to us in better terms than I will, but I'll give it a little shot. It's something that everyone can relate to. It's defined as a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. Which sounds like a bit of a loaded, like a loaded word to me. I mean, it can be quite, it feels like it could be quite broad. I sort of thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll sit and watch Netflix all afternoon instead of going and doing you know, going for doing exercise or something. And maybe I'll order a pizza instead of making dinner. Like I said, I would, maybe that's, that's goblin mode, but it sounds like it might be even more than that. But anyway, we'll, we'll let, we'll let Oxford explain themselves. It does though, apparently speak very much to the ethos of 2022, which why it was, was so popular, you know, um, Almost everyone chose the same words the past two years. It was pandemic two years ago and vax or vaccine last year. So it's nice to see them all diverge this year and choose different things. And this one is sort of the, we won't call it post-pandemic because the COVID, there's a lot of COVID out there these days. Um, but it certainly is the post-lockdown version of what we're supposed to be. All that pressure of Zoom meetings and Instagram and so on. Well, joining us now to explain is Casper Grathwall. He's president of Oxford Languages at Oxford University Press. Casper, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. It's interesting to see that you uh, left this up to the to the great public to decide this year. Uh, what, what led to that decision? We did. we did. Well, you know, I mean, usually we go through the process and we examine the evidence and the editors at Oxford University Press. We sit down and we debate the the, you know, which word we think uh, should be the winner. And that last step this year, we decided to open it up because, look, it's been a hard three or two or three years, you know, where, where we're kind of post-pandemic in some ways, but it's left us a little threadbare. And the process is one that brings us a lot of joy. It's a, it's a really fun, you know, and engaging activity for us. And so we thought, why not let's let that last step be opened to word lovers everywhere and let people experience a little bit of the debate around thinking about language and the year it's 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 fun to do it's something that again can bring a little joy to people's lives and we you know we weren't sure how uh, it would be received and we've had an overwhelming response it's been really amazing people clearly engaged with this and found it something that they wanted to think about um, this time of the year yeah, it was interesting because uh, clearly terms like metaverse, hashtag I stand with are ones that you would think would get a lot of popular support. But mm-hmm. goblin mode, a word which I which I term which I knew but didn't think of in the same yeah. breath as say metaverse, which we talk about a lot. Yeah. Uh, but goblin mode was the overwhelming winner. I mean, it, 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 it landslide. It was. I mean, almost three hundred fifty thousand votes, which was uh, unexpected, um, and even more people debating the choices on our social media channels. And Goblin Mode was by far the favorite. Almost 90% of the votes came in for Goblin Mode. And, you know, there were big campaigns that various online magazines and others uh, really pushed for. And 
in second place was Metaverse, which I think um, in particular, a couple of crypto communities were really pushing for Metaverse um, and trying to get people in their circles to, to, to vote in that direction. But clearly it didn't have a huge impact because um, Goblin Mode was the overwhelming favorite. When you went into this as the panel who decided what words would be would be put up there, the three, mm-hmm. the final three, so to speak, did you have a favorite going in? Did you have one you thought would probably win? I mean, when you, you know, look at the previous previous years, you would think maybe Metaverse would be the would be the favorite going in. Maybe I have to I have to admit that I I had thought Metaverse would probably do pretty well. I mean, you know, when you think about where we're heading as a digital society and our lives being more and more virtual, you know, this march towards the metaverse, you know, I just thought it probably people would think, yeah, that, you know, we have been talking a lot about the metaverse this year and that word um, feels like it sums up the word the year, but unexpectedly, I think goblin mode also really summed up the year for a lot of people. A lot of people who felt like, you know, I'm, tired of the pressure of these idealized curated selves that we're supposed to put forward on our Instagram feeds and on TikTok and things like that. It feels like we're at a point where rather than just show your best self, you also want to show your real self. And people responded really well to that. So goblin mode clearly also captured a lot of the mood of the year. Yeah. It's amazing that a word that sort of describe sort of self-indulgent slovenly behavior found 93% of people, 93% of more than 300,000 people actually taking the time to go on and vote, which is yeah. in of itself a bit of a proactive, <laughs> proactive way. Well, of it doing is. It's, it, you're right. It's not very yeah. goblin mode-ish. It isn't. Right? Not you know? at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's, that's very true. What does it no, mean? No, goblin mode. I mean, so, so as you sort of said, it, it, it's really that behavior that's unapologetically self-indulgent, you know, maybe a little slovenly or lazy. It's the idea of, you know, it's when, you're sitting on the couch in your pajamas, you know, eating a bag of chips and a pint of ice cream and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, you know, it's it's this idea that we are not always these images that are put forward out there that kind of, you know, are all polished. We're we've got dents in us and we're also just real. And I think that it's interesting how it resonated with people and how online communities have felt a real relief when they share these, these real images and these real experiences of themselves and others respond to it well. So, you know, I think goblin, that, that concept of goblin mode, it clearly it needed a word or a phrase that really captured what that, what that other end of the spectrum from the kind of curated uh, idealized world is. And that goblin mode really, you know, has, has resonated with people. Yeah. Well, where does it come from? I mean, I, I, I can't even remember when I first heard it. You know, you think of it as a, as a neologism, like a new word, you know, that, that came about this year. But I think we've been tracking um, this. You know, we look at a lot of evidence around real language usage. And it was 2009, I think, where we have our first recorded use of it. But really, it was this year that it caught on and we saw a real spike in usage, but it started in like, you know, April, May, and and then really had captured a lot of attention, particularly use among online communities. And, you know, people in their virtual lives were engaging, you know, with the concept and with the term uh, goblin mode throughout the year. It's interesting now when you look at um, how words evolve, that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been something you would have seen in a newspaper. I mean, I was looking back at 2012, uh, the British word that was chosen was omni shambles, right? Which was a very much a headline word. It was sort of in and well, around the, the, well, the London, sort of in and around the London Olympics and some of the problems that were there. Sure, but now sure. these are these are words that you may never have even heard spoken. To be honest, you've seen them written dozens well, of times, but you've never seen them heard them spoken. That's really interesting. I mean, it it shows the power and the impact that online communities and online our social media channels, you know, the, the way in which the the kind of impact they're having on language. There are certain terms, or you put a hashtag in front of something, and you know, even I hashtag I stand with, and um, and it gets used all the time, but it's not really spoken very often. So it's interesting how words and language is evolving now. Um, and feeling the impact of um, how we communicate with each other over social media. 
It was also interesting looking back just at the past few years. I think, um, you know, there are different organizations that put out their words of the year and so many of them for 2020, 2021, it was all pandemic and vaccination. And, you know, it was very, it was, yeah, it was very much, uh, there was a trend. There was clearly a pattern. It's interesting. There's been a real divergence this year. Um, And just where, I mean, Goblin Mode is probably the more, the most interesting of the bunch, I'd have to say. Well, it's definitely, it's definitely got a certain kind of lightness to it. And I think that's one of the reasons why maybe it also appeals to people. Um, We've gone through some serious years. And, you know, I think that when you have an option of something like goblin mode as a word, that there's a lot of kind of fun and laughter in that and, and people really taking the air out of themselves, um, that that can feel really good. And it can be something that is a balm in a time where, you know, a lot of the headlines are ones that are really difficult to take. I also noticed that that what we define as a word of the year has begun to expand. I mean, I know back was it 2015 that you chose the emoji, right? There was a it was the, yeah the face with the tears of joy emoji. Yeah. So the our, it, again, it goes back to how much language or communication, I should say, has evolved in the last while. That these are that you've opened it up to words like post truth or or you know emoji yeah. face. Yeah. No, absolutely. That emoji face was one. I mean, if you are a conservative word lover, um, you know, you were not happy with the fact that we chose an emoji rather than a word <laughs> as the word of the year. But but that was part of the fun of it, too. And, and not just fun, but also to highlight, it highlighted how language was changing and how our modes of communicating with each other are shifting. And they are undergoing a real radical change um, in by the ways in which we now digitally communicate with each other. It's having a big impact on our vocabulary. And you know, sometimes the word of the year is a way to highlight some of that shifting, kind of call it out and step back and realize that, you know, the way that which we speak and we think about, you know, I don't know, Shakespeare's language or things like that and how stilted it is. We're undergoing another big change in a way that I wonder a couple hundred years from now, if people look at 20th century English and they just think how stilted, how formal. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to find out. Yeah. And also just looking at how quickly things evolved to looking back, I guess, back to, was it 2005, 2006? Bovard was the British word, the UK word yeah, in 2006. Yeah. Carbon neutral is one we still use a lot. Yeah. A locavore, one you don't hear that much anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you think, do you think these words will age quicker or at least become obsolete faster than they used to be? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we're definitely um, ephemeral language. We're able to track it now in a way that we never were before. And it moves across wider and wider swaths of people, given how easily it is for easy it is for us to communicate in a digital way with people who are at distance. And so, you know, that's definitely a factor. But some of the words of the year we've picked, you know, they were they were a spike at the moment. They captured a moment, but they didn't last. Other ones, I think of like uh, selfie, for example, and you know that one podcast. You know, podcast was a really early one, and they were those words were just starting to ascend, and it captured that moment. And you know, you think years later, oh, of course, you know, well that makes sense. But you know, but a lot of the words that we chose, they, they didn't really end up going anywhere. They just were a preoccupation of that moment, and that ended up being what the word of the year captured. I still love the word omni shambles. <laughs> I think that's a, a fun one. Isn't the, it? the 2012 UK one. Yeah, well, th- yeah. this was a very non goblin mm-hmm. mode type of time. So thank you so much <laughs> for taking uh, the oh, many minutes yeah. to explain. A real pleasure. Thank you. Happy to speak with you. Oh, the Jetsons. I remember watching that as a kid thinking, wow, won't it be amazing when we have flying cars and TV phones and all that stuff? I'm actually trying to remember exactly when the Jetsons was set. Uh, what, uh, I can look that up. There we go. <laughs> what year was the Jetsons supposed to be? 2062. So we're not there yet. We're still 40 years away. But it certainly gave you a glimpse into the future, didn't it? It gave you the glimpse into what it could be like. We sort of had this idea that, you know, this digital age that was upon us was going to be this incredible thing, right? This, you know, so whether it was Star Trek, Star Wars, the Jetsons, there were so many examples of brave new worlds where tech was going to be the gateway to this very different kind of life. And in many ways, it has. It's, it's just incredible to think about what's even happened in this century. Um, from 3D printers to smartphones. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. The things that make our lives different now than they were even in the mid-90s is, is remarkable when you think about it. Um, but the sort of the head, heady days of the pandemic, when we were all under lockdown, uh, we had a very, very rapid glimpse or at least an acceleration of what it would be like to live in a much more digitally 
prevalent world. Um, you know, it's true we have access to everything at the touch of the, sc- at touch of the screen, really. It li- the world is literally at our fingertips now. It's remarkable to think about what it was like if you first used the internet in the 80s for, or the late 80s, early 90s, for instance, mid-90s. What it's like now, what your phone can do is almost unfathomable. You'd, you'd have a hard time explaining your, your mobile phone or your smartphone to someone if they popped in here from 1995. You just would. Um, but that all went into hyperspeed during the pandemic. You know, work from home, socialize at home, shop at home. The list goes on and on and on. You remember movies where people would sort of sit in their chairs and, you know, sort of immersed in virtual reality forever and ever and ever. There was a Bruce Willis movie. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, and that sort of seemed like that's what our future could be like. In, in some ways, it was both awful and in some ways, it was utopian, depending how you looked at it. Uh, but it didn't take us long to realize under those extreme circumstances that maybe spending your entire life sort of with everything at your fingertips, but not really being involved in it yourself wasn't really so pleasant. At least it wasn't entirely pleasant. I think we started to remember what the joys of life were like away from our connected world. And that brings me to our next guest. David Sachs is a journalist. He's also the author of 2016's The Revenge of Analog, Why Real Things Matter. So you can see a theme developing here. Well, he went back to that theme. He took it one step further in a new book called The Futures Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And in it, he looks at whether or not, whether or not our digital future is inevitable. Google mapped out for us, if you'll pardon the pun. Or can we do away with some of the downsides of what we're experiencing while still adapting to the upsides of technology? Because there are many. In fact, I was asking you earlier uh, what you thought the greatest invention of the 21st century was so far. What's that one device that you thought that came along that really was far, far more good than bad? Let me know, 877-399. 9898 is the text line, 877-399-9898. It can be anything. It can be anything. I mean, streaming changed things so fundamentally. You know, the ability to stream stuff. Um, Social media has been both a curse, but also an incredible blessing when it comes to being able to find out what's going on around the world in a matter of moments at your, in the palm of your hand. It's remarkable. Um, So sure, sure, you know, developments are great. The metaverse, great. But how about the very real universe around us? Yes to gadgets and screens, but also yes to get-togethers and socializing. Perhaps, he argues, the future is more analog, quote-unquote, than we'd once believed. And joining me now is David Sachs, author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Thanks for your time. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. This is an interesting interesting theory because you're right. For so long, we kind of felt that technology was moving at a sort of unshakable pace forward. And then all of a sudden during the pandemic, we got a real idea of what that might look like. (laughs) Uh, How did you come up with the idea? I know this isn't something that happened in 2020, but where did you get the inspiration for the idea that somehow the digital, our digital advance maybe wasn't as utopian as we may have hoped? Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. I wrote a, another book about analog a couple of years ago in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, and that really looked at why we were seeing things like vinyl records and film cameras and bookstores coming back when everyone had predicted they were they were inevitably going to go away, and they have kept growing since then. And I kept hearing this phrase, well, the future is digital, obviously. It's inevitable the future is digital. We're living in a digital world. And I just kept questioning it. You know, what do you mean by that? Why would you say that? What, what evidence you have that the world is digital? The world is a planet. We're, we're, we're animals on it. And then I think really the pandemic kind of brought all of that to the fore because everyone everywhere, you know, was, was, was sort of stuck inside and had to live their lives, work, school, entertainment, conversations, family reunions, religious festivals through digital technology, through a screen, right? And I think that immersion in you know what was kind of a preview of this digital future that was sort of predicted and promised really showed us the limits of that very quickly and it, it, to me it highlighted the that central truth that that you know fundamentally at the end of the day we humans are analog beings creatures animals and we we realize the value of what those analog non-digital spaces relationships interactions are, which are the very things that during COVID we couldn't do and we craved for more than anything. Yeah, and when you when you look at that, I mean, you, you speak very poignantly about the heart and the head, right? When it comes to why we embrace things, why we continue to embrace things that may seem like they should be obsolete by now. For instance, you often point out that we, that papers made 
has is still with us. In fact, maybe with us in a in a way that it wasn't in the past. Even though we have so many, you know, of e-readers and so forth, but we have uh, we still cling to books. And and you point out it's not just sort of people my age, or like in our fifties. It's not people being nostalgic. It's it's young people too. Yeah, you know, my kids who are nine and six love books. They've never read an ebook in their life. They love getting a tablet in their hands and playing games, but they love reading books. And I think that the, the, the data shows, I mean, in the publishing industry, you know, nine out of 10 books sold are in paper, right? And, and we've had the Kindle for well over 10 years and eBooks that have been pretty much perfect in that time, technologically speaking, they're lighter, they're cheaper, they're, you know, you can buy a book in, in, in two taps of a finger, it's backlit, uh, it doesn't weigh anything when you go on vacation and yet people prefer paper. Why? Because they have physical needs, they like to touch things. They like to hold things. You know, when people are given surveys about why it is that they prefer reading in paper, they say it's the feel, it's the smell, right? It's not a logical reason, but we're not perfectly logical creatures. We're not computers. And I think we kind of forgot that. We rushed into using hardware and software. But what happened when that was all we had is that we were mostly miserable. I mean, when people think back to those days of lockdown, where they were shopping online, they were working online, their kids were going to school online, everything was being done through the screen. There's very, very few people who refer to those as happy times, right? At first, there was this sort of novelty of like, hey, look at me, I'm doing an exercise class in my living room. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, just get me outside. I need to go for a walk. I want to go into a grocery store and squeeze an avocado. You know, please, God, put my children back in school. Uh, you know, and, and people waxing nostalgic about things like, office chit chat <laughs> and sitting at a cubicle uh, shows that there is this deeper value that we didn't even really think about or see for the analog world. One of the things I found out not too long ago, having a similar conversation was that one thing that we weren't able to replicate online was small talk. And one of those sort of innocuous things we'd never really thought about too deeply turned out to be something that we couldn't replicate without the environment being as it once was. And it was one of those things, as you point out, that was greatly missed in that new digital world that we weren't able to communicate in that way anymore. We struggled online to, to, to conduct small talk, which it turns out is a pretty important part of our social interactions. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the three scariest words in the English language in the past five years. Zoom cocktail party. The worst. Right? The, the, worst. the absolute just nails on chalkboard experience. <laughs> the epitome of a waste of time. And what is a cocktail party? It's small talk with alcohol, right? And yet there's something about that that leads to interesting, surprising conversations and ideas and new relationships and changed relationships that is kind of what makes a cocktail party what it is. And we took the best technology we had and we did our best to curate them and, you know, games and groups and other things. And people cracked their drinks open and it just was the most awkward and awful thing. And I think 90% of people who went to one were like, well, never doing that again. Thank no. you very much. Yeah, it was funny to turn them on and then have half the people, you know, a certain proportion of the people leave their cameras off, which kind of defeated the whole. Yeah, the whole like there's no, there's no leaving your camera off at a cocktail party. You can leave the party. But you can't like go hide in a closet. You need to be present. You need to take risks. You need to be able to read body language. Now, the thing is at a cocktail party, if you want to be quiet, you can sit there and you can nod along and drink your drink and, and, and participate in the conversation without really even saying too many words. And that's fully engaged and you're there and you're sort of part of stuff. But the way that digital technology works, it's very binary. It doesn't allow for a lot of subtlety. And that subtlety is, you know, what we completely forgot is, is the way that we humans have evolved to communicate over hundreds of thousands of years, which is our greatest strength as a species, right? We're not the strongest animal. We're not the fastest animal. We're not, um, I don't know, an animal that can wow. swim through water we very well. We can't fly. We can't swim too well. We, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, aside from our brains that are able to build things, it's it's our social ability to communicate with one another and and do it in all sorts of complex and different ways that has actually allowed us to build civilization. Uh, it, and that just is limited through digital technology. And so this promise that, 
oh, well, the future of communication is going to be digital. I mean, what Mark Zuckerberg is peddling with Meta and Facebook and saying, the future of human connection is going to be holograms. Ben, you and I in the future are going to be doing this interview, but you'll be a hologram and I'll be a hologram. And you can see my facial expressions and I can see yours. And it'll be just like being there, yeah. but it won't. No, it'll, it'll be, be just it'll be like, like maybe closer, maybe a little better than just audio conversation, but probably not. David Sachs, author of The Future's Analog, is with us this half hour, uh, How to Create a More Human World. We've been talking about how we got here, which is sort of a pushback against the consistent evolution of digital. We really do have the world at our fingertips now on our phones, in our screens, and so forth. Uh, but for a lot of us, it hasn't been quite as um, fulfilling as we might have hoped. Uh, you talked about the heart and the head, and that was an interesting one because you talked about you know, sort of the illogical nature of continuing to collect, say, vinyl. Or books, considering now you could have them in, you know, condensed form and one, you know, just on your phone, but you continue to buy them because you like to have them and that there is a certain uh, illogicalness to all of this. Yeah, I, I think many in the technology world are very logical. Uh, many people who are designing and building and selling this stuff and, and they see, they equate human beings to sort of logical problems that need logical solutions. You know, many of these people are Let's just call them nerds. And so there's a good Star Trek analogy, right? They, they they see us as kind of these higher, higher being Vulcans who think logically. But we're not Vulcans. We're not, we're not Spock. We're we're Kirk, right? We're Captain Kirk. We're the rash, emotional, vain, <laughs> you know, William Shatner character um, who's falling in love with every sexy alien that comes along and, and all the trouble that comes with it. And I think we forget that. We forget that because we we love this idea of certainty and a logical process is kind of rooted in this notion of certainty. And certainty is what digital technology is promising us. You know, this is going to be this much cheaper and it's going to grow by this much. You'll be this much more efficient and therefore it's going to be better. But the human world, our society, our lives are not bound up in notions of efficiency. Efficiency is not what makes us happy. It, it, it can make our lives easier or better in certain circumstances. But the things that are the, the greatest inefficiencies are where we get our greatest ideas, our best creativity, our most identity, our most meaning, our most joy. And I think that that notion of inefficiency is a very human thing that we need to embrace as a core part of what our future is. Um, not everything needs to be efficient. Not everything needs to be optimized. And when we lean too much in that direction, we we find ourselves burned out and unhappy and and really unfulfilled. One of the things that I always remarked upon when I went from, you know, buying vinyl to buying cassettes to buying CDs to, you know, Spotify or buying books is that when you go out and make the commitment to purchase something, there's a story behind it. So you could look at your bookshelf, and I'm sure you could probably remember where you bought 90% of them, at least. Records, too. You might remember even the place you were when you picked it up and looked at it and thought, maybe I'll try this one out. I find with digital, you lose that commitment. And part of that issue means you don't have the story behind some of the things that you that you own or collect or like. And that kind of changes your relationship with it. Oftentimes, now I read books and forget what the, forget what the title was because I don't have a story behind it anymore. Or you don't have the physical cover of the book that you're looking mm -hmm. at, right? Well, when you get too, it yeah. on a Kindle or a Kobo or whatever it is, you you know the first page it's giving you is the first page, um, and you don't have that sitting on your shelf. And you walk by it each day, and you sort of see it. Considering you looked at this first pre-pandemic, and now that we've gone through those early days of the pandemic, the lockdowns, and so on, do you get the sense that maybe because of it we've reached a point where we will reimagine our relationship with the digital age a little bit. And again, you know, the future is analog. The future is probably digital too. Uh, but maybe we are better able to see that balance, at least for the, in the near term. I think so. I, I think what we're seeing now is the beginning of critical thinking around this notion of the inevitability of digital. The, the hard evidence is in, you know, the very companies that were called the pandemic darlings, Amazon, Shopify, Netflix and other streaming services, Peloton, you know, all the delivery apps whose stock prices and sales went through the roof in, you know, the the second and third quarter of 2020. And it was predicted that this was the new normal, Zoom, right? There was no going back. Everybody was sort of moving in this direction. All work would continue to be remote even more so. Everyone who had been 
you know, buying groceries online. They weren't going back to, to, a you know, to a, to a no frills to go bag their things themselves. Uh, this was sort of the inevitable way. Everyone would just be sitting at home, eating their takeout, you know, riding their Peloton bikes and going on zoom calls. And, and what have we seen since then? We've seen people moving with their feet and their bodies back into the real world, into all these places and spaces that were sort of consigned to the dustbin of history and the stock prices of all of these companies are way, way down because their sales have, have not only retreated back to where they were at the beginning of the pandemic, but even behind that. I mean, zoom is like, just keeps losing paid users because people are like, okay, I'll use it for a bit, but you know, there's a, I need to go to meetings. I need to go to the office. I can't do this for everything. Right. And, and even Amazon is laying off, you know, tens of thousands of warehouse workers here in Canada, not because retail sales are down um, uh, overall in the economy, other, you know, stores aren't laying off people. Um, it's, it's, it's that, that demand for e-commerce had a limit. People only wanted to buy so much online. They still wanted to go to a store and, and squeeze avocados or, you know, flip through the bins of records or try on a pair of jeans before buying them. David Sachs, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Well, like many children's hospitals across Canada these days, Alberta's two hospitals are seeing a surge in pediatric patients as they deal with a real rise in respiratory illnesses. Uh, we've seen it in Hamilton. We saw it at Chio in Ottawa, sick kids in Toronto. Those are some of the ones that have really been making headlines out here in BC as well. But health officials have said that the Calgary Hospital and the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton have been operating at or above 100% of their normal capacity for the past month, imagine that's a long time for a hospital to be under that kind of strain. Uh, a, surge in, a surge in patients at uh, ACH prompted Alberta Health Services to redeploy staff there from Rotary Flames House, a facility that provides respite care for chronically and terminally, terminally ill kids. So they've had to start moving staff around. Think about that as well, just to make up the gap. Now, the government there says they've secured another 5 million bottles of children's medication to manage fever and pain. This is Health Minister Jason Copping today. The past few weeks have been incredibly challenging for parents, for caregivers, for healthcare professionals, and for our entire healthcare system. When our kids are sick, we will do whatever it takes to help them. And, and quite frankly, as a parent, I know how helpless you can feel when your child isn't feeling well and how you want to do everything in your power to make them feel better. Now, not that any other province has been jumping to do this either, but anything it takes does not include some measures, obviously, because when asked what her government was doing to prevent illnesses in the first place, Premier Daniel Smith suggested that question was off topic. Here's the here's the fact of the matter. We know that we've been hit with RSV, COVID and influenza all at once. Sadly, there isn't a vaccine for RSV and it is the most common childhood illness. And so what people need to know is that when their child gets sick, that they have the medication available to them so that they can treat the symptoms at home. Well, that seems a bit like offering Tylenol when you've had a hangover instead of telling someone not to drink. But anyway, uh, health officials saying staying home, say, staying home when sick is a good plan. Wearing a mask, getting vaccinated for flu and COVID-19 would help reduce the overall strain on hospitals right across the board. Joining me now with more is Dr. Shazma Mizani, or Mithani rather, emergency room physician at the Royal Alexandra and Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. Thank you so much, Dr. Mithani. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me tonight. So this has been, we've been reading about this for a while. We know it's been going on for the better, more than a month now, really since October, hasn't it? And, and just how bad has it gotten? Well, it's gotten uh, even worse than it was when it started back in October, as you mentioned. We're continuing to see ongoing pressure in the pediatric emergency departments in Alberta. Uh, we're seeing high volumes of patients who are requiring emergency care and then as a result of that, a high volume of patients who are needing to be admitted to hospitals, mostly because of respiratory illnesses. And so it's been a big challenge to try to um, tackle these volumes and try to take care of all of these sick kids lately. Uh, and what's been, I mean, we've talked a lot about this triple storm of flu, COVID um, and, our, our, and RSV. Is, is, that what, is, is it really these respiratory illnesses that is causing this huge jump? We just haven't seen it. We haven't seen it combined like this in the past, certainly. Well, yeah, we certainly haven't seen it combined like this in the past, and we're seeing um, those three viruses, but also just regular run-of-the-mill cold viruses that we see around this time of year. Uh, the problem right now is that the 
viruses in particular influenza and RSV spiked a lot earlier, started to rise a lot earlier than we were expecting uh, compared to previous years and even pre-pandemic years. And so we're seeing quite a bit higher numbers and an earlier uh, pressure that was put on the healthcare system with those two viruses in particular. And we're only just starting to see the COVID-19 numbers starting to creep up now. I mean, that's still going to add additional pressure to those other two viruses. And then, of course, the, you know, there aren't just three respiratory viruses in existence. There, there are, you know, hundreds of respiratory viruses that exist out there. And so there's lots of those floating around as well. And so all of these things combined um, are, are causing our kids to get quite sick. I can imagine for parents, it'll bring some solace if they can find kids' medication at the pharmacy again, but I can't imagine it's going to solve your problem. Well, that's just it. I mean, of course, we never want kids to suffer, and um, fever and pain medication like acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which is what that announcement was part of today, are a very important part of making sure that kids are comfortable and feel better. However, uh, in my experience, it's not parents who are coming to the ER with with fevers um, or with you know, uh, looking for medications that is causing um, this big influx of patients. It's often uh, kids who are having trouble breathing um, and have been having persistent cough and persistent symptoms beyond just a fever that's causing this pressure on the emergency department. And so uh, I'm happy that we have these medications to help make our kids feel better. Um, but I, I am not quite sure that it's actually going to take off the pressure as much as we need it to. Dr. Mathani, what is it like compared to, I mean, for someone who's never set foot or who's, hasn't set foot inside a kid's ER in a very long time, what are you seeing now that you hadn't seen before? Mm-hmm. So um, we're seeing just the sheer numbers are definitely what we haven't seen before. So those sheer numbers are like quite unprecedented right now where we are seeing much higher volumes of patients who are coming in and registering in the waiting room or in the emergency department to be seen. Uh, it's harder for these patients to get in to see us because we're so full. And so that waiting room is getting more full of patients. And so those wait times are quite a bit higher than we're used to seeing often approaching the double digits on very busy days. And then we're also seeing a higher number of these patients requiring admission to hospital. So, you know, previously, thankfully, kids don't tend to get very sick. And so even in the emergency department, when we do see kids, most of them we get to send home. Um, but we are seeing a higher number of patients require admission to hospital with these respiratory illnesses and with difficulty breathing or requiring oxygen. And so all of these um, things are really what we haven't seen before. And all of these things are contributing to the pressure that we're continuing to see right now. And not to mention, I, I can't even imagine what the impact on your work environment is when parents are coming in with sick children. They're obviously worried about them. I, I, I gather you're having to uh, create waiting rooms and spaces that weren't meant to be waiting rooms just to deal with the overload uh, and then move staff out of other areas where kids need help to try to help with this. I mean, it seems like, I mean, I think you put it in another interview, you said we're playing chicken in terms of whether the numbers are going to go down or whether the system is going to collapse. That's some pretty, those are strong words from, from a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the exact concern. What, what we're seeing is, you know, I, I've said this before um, to colleagues in interviews that I think that the healthcare workers in the emergency department are some of the most innovative healthcare workers that exist in the system because we are always trying to um, be flexible to try to uh, find um, unique solutions to the situation, the pressure that we're facing. And, and oftentimes that means uh, seeing patients in unconventional spaces, uh, trying to make um, different waiting spaces or, you know, seeing someone in a room and then sending them back out to the waiting room while, while we're waiting for results to come back, for example, if it's safe to do so, um, using clinic spaces in other parts of the hospital. And of course, that's all limited by staffing, as you mentioned. And so we're really just trying to do the best we can to to adjust and to to manage these volumes. But um, there's a limit to that. There's a limit to the uh, physical resources that we have, and there's a limit to the human resources that we have. And of course, my concern and the concern of all of my colleagues is that if we continue to see this pressure and then run out of options in terms of ways to mitigate it, we're going to start seeing bad outcomes and nobody wants to see that happen. Yeah. How close do you feel like you are to that? I mean, I can tell you my personal experience in a shift I had a few weeks ago where we were so busy. Um, there were constantly over 30 to 40 kids in the waiting room for my entire shift. We were out of resuscitation rooms. We were out of monitored acute care rooms. And when, when you're that full, you have no idea in the emergency, you have no idea what's going to walk in the door ever, right? It's always a, it's, 
you can never expect what, what's going to come in. And so in that situation, I had um, a baby come in that was having difficulty breathing and we had nowhere to see this baby. And thankfully, um, again, you know, we're as resourceful as we can be. We used an unconventional space to try to, to get this baby in as quickly as possible to get that baby on oxygen and, and frankly, save that baby's life. And we, if we didn't have that space, I don't even want to think about what, what the outcome could have been because it's, these types of situations are becoming more and more common. And I, I, I don't know how to answer your question in terms of how long it's going to be. It's, it's a day-by-day thing, and I just hope that it never gets there. But the concern is that as we continue to have days like this that are the norm, um, that we may not have a space uh, to see people in when, when they need us the most. I, I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but it sounds like you're triaging in a war zone. It's certainly what it feels like um, on on most days now. I mean, we're in a situation where uh, you mentioned triage, right? And so triage is where um, a patient and their family comes to see the, the nurse. That's their first point of contact into the healthcare system. There's a story that's taken, their vital signs are taken, and they're put in the queue based on how sick they are. One of the problems that we're facing both at the Stollery and Alberta Children's right now, the two pediatric hospitals in Alberta, is is that there's even a line to see triage. Sometimes the wait to even get triaged is in excess of 90 minutes to two hours. And that in and of itself is, is quite concerning and can be very dangerous because you, you could be waiting with, with a sick child just to be able, be able to be assessed and triaged to get put in the queue. And, and that, frankly, is unacceptable. Dr. Mathani, what would a good first step look like? Uh, a plan, I guess, would be probably be the best place to start. But I get this—I get the impression you probably have an idea about what needs to be done. Yeah, you know, I think it needs to really be a multifactorial approach here, and I think it starts just simply by having um, ongoing acknowledgement of of what the issues are and and transparency with the public uh, in terms of of what we're seeing and and what steps our um, elected officials are taking in order to try to address this. As you mentioned, kind of off the hop, prevention is the best medicine, right? I would prefer not to see people in the emergency department uh, if possible. And so, honestly, things like vaccines and masks, like this, these are proven entities that will decrease the spread of respiratory viruses. I know that, um, you know, there was there were some comments made today about how RSV doesn't have a vaccination, but you know what does? Influenza and COVID-19, and they're very effective right. vaccines, and they and they not only prevent the um, uh, contraction of the illness, but they they very much also prevent the severe outcomes that we're seeing. And so what that means is you might still get those viruses, but you're probably not going to need to be hospitalized for them. And so I would like to see uh, a big public push for vaccines. I'm not asking for a mandate, but a strong recommendation and strong encouragement from the government would really go a long way um, in order to to make sure that we're using preventative medicine to, to keep people out of hospitals. Um, Public education in general, I think, is going to be important too. Just you know, making sure that people understand when it's appropriate to use the emergency department versus when it's appropriate to see their family doctor or pediatrician, um, and getting resources out in the community to to help uh, offload the volumes that we're seeing. Um, as I mentioned before, thankfully most people are still discharged in the pediatric hospitals. Like yes, there are higher admission uh, admissions, but most people are still discharged. And so if we can try to find a way to offload that volume to the community by having people see urgent care clinics or, like I said, family doctors or pediatricians and really just helping to educate parents and the public on, on what can be done at home uh, in order to keep, um, keep their children comfortable and, and hopefully out of the hospital. Yeah, I, I imagine too, you know, this too shall pass as things do. Um, what everything looks like when it does, we don't know, but this too shall pass. What would you like to be you know, and then people tend to forget, right? We move on and then people forget what happened. What would you like the lasting, um, not legacy, it's not a legacy, but the lasting impact of this to be, clearly there needs to be some form of systemic change. We've seen it in ERs writ large, but clearly now that we're seeing it in children's ERs, we we have to recognize that there's been a, a problem with infrastructure and, and, and capacity there too. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely, that's a great question. I think Again, it's kind of a, a two-pronged approach. I would say that going forward, um, that we need to really start investing in primary and preventative care. Um, because if, again, ideally we want to keep people out of the acute care system because that is expensive. 
Um, and it's also uh, the worst case scenario for patients. We People shouldn't have to be admitted to hospital if we can avoid it. And so really kind of shifting our focus on on uh, away from kind of Band-Aid solutions and having the hospital be a safety net and focusing on um, having a more robust primary care system with more family doctors, more community pediatricians, um, really focusing on public health uh, and funding public health to uh, get vaccination campaigns um, going as well. And again, to really just try to keep people healthy in the community and, and out of the acute care system. Now, that being said, um, there's been a, you know, a lot of talk about just how, um, uh, how our hospital system is not adapted to the growing population of pediatric patients. And I think that we need to take a close look at that and, and um, again, just kind of fund, fund what we need to in terms of uh, what is required for our current population. In most situations, I would say both in, in pediatric patients and even in adults, if we have a, a strong preventative and primary care system, we don't actually, like, we shouldn't have too much redundancy in, in the system, in the acute care system, because, again, with a publicly funded healthcare system, which I think is really important, redundancy is expensive, and we want to try to be as cost-effective as possible. And when we're talking about being cost-effective, the evidence always points to, again, I'm kind of like a broken record, but primary care and preventative medicine, that's what's going to be the biggest bang for our buck and, and to keep people as healthy as possible. And I think there just needs to be a general shift in mindset on focusing on that because, um, you know, ICU, ICU capacity and new hospitals, these are all very sexy things to talk about uh, during election cycles. But um, the, the evidence lies with just focusing on community and primary care with, uh, with making sure that our healthcare system remains um, sustainable and, and available to everybody going forward. Well, Dr. Mathani, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, we appreciate all your hard work, obviously. I hope situa- the situation improves. Obviously, we watch from afar. I hope so too. Thanks for having me tonight.